Thanks for taking the time to listen to these recordings of our Sunday morning sermons. The Door Church is one church in two locations on mission to see lives restored with the gospel for God's glory, and we'd love to have you join us. To learn more about our gatherings in Louisville and Argyle, Texas, visit our website at thedoorchurch.net. Now, let's worship God by opening His Word. Good morning, church family. Our scripture reading for today is on Romans 3, 12 to 20, which is on page 884 in the Bible in front of you. So if you don't have a Bible, please go ahead and grab one. My name is Reina Sutantri. My family and I have been attending the Door Church for almost six years now. My husband and I serve in the Blue Room at TDC Kids, and we have been covenant members for five years. Once again, our scripture for today is Romans 3, 12 to 20. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in the sight in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is God's word. Thank you. Um, again, if you uh, missed the beginning, my name is Scott Brooks. I'm lead pastor on the preaching team. Super grateful to be here with you this morning. Uh, thank you for the scripture reading. Uh, if you're keeping sound, uh, or keeping uh, sermon notes this morning, it is the sermon title this morning is "Every Mouth Is Silenced." Every mouth is silenced, and um, I'm not going to do this. But like internally, if we did like, hey, a show of hands, who, who understands what Christianity is about? I think most of us in here uh, would probably raise our hand, and then some of you, you you wouldn't. And I just praise God that you're here this morning to hear about uh, really what Christianity is about. Uh, my concern is, I think if most of us raise our hands like, oh, I think I, I, I get what Christianity is about, I think most of us would be, would be off in what we'd say uh, about what Christianity actually is. And that is, that's really good news because the word of God is going to clarify uh, Christ and what Christianity is about. Uh, maybe for the first time, maybe for the first time, I praise God for that. Or maybe it was like me this week where I had forgotten what Christianity is all about, which seems crazy, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is slippery. And I never want to assume, as Paul gets here, I never, that, that we get it. And so let this uh, be fresh in your mind. That maybe this challenges you, but I can tell you as I studied this text this, this week that my breath was taken away by the beauty of Christ and surprised by grace once again. And so I hope that that would be true of you this morning. I hope that you would challenge yourself. Do I actually believe the gospel and what it says? Or do I, am I making something else up to believe? And so uh, let's let this, the text speak for itself. Paul is writing to the, the Roman church. And Romans 3 is a really pivotal uh, chapter because he's challenging them of really what is Christianity? What is the gospel of Jesus 
Christ about and really what, it, what, it's, what it's not. And so uh, I'm going to pick up in verse 10 because it sets the stage for uh, the rest of what will be at 12 through, through 20. Verse, verse 10 says this, As it is written, none is righteous, none is righteous, not one, uh, no one understands. So I'm going to start with that first part is no one is righteous. So the context that Paul has been writing thus far is chapter one. He's writing to the Gentile, the unbeliever, the immoral, the uh, irreligious, and writes, uh, they are ungodly. The wrath of God is revealed towards them in all kinds of immoral ways that you can live. Uh, and, and he says, this is not okay. And what he's saying is no one is righteous in the uh, the unbeliever, the immoral, the licentious, the, someone who does, you know, uh, big sins, not okay with God. Uh, and they, he has this category of Roman one that, that these big sinners is, is, is not righteous. Then in Romans two, he does something that's very interesting. He says, the Jewish people, the moral people, uh, the, the people who keep the 10 commandments, the religious, the upright and chapter three says, no one is righteous. So what he's saying is the Jew and the Gentile, the moral, the immoral, the religious, the irreligious, the sinner, if you will, saint, are, are both under the same umbrella of no one is righteous. Now that's shocking because what I just said is the good and bad in their own minds are both not righteous according to the word of God. Now, this is interesting because we don't believe this. <laughs> what I just said, we, we just don't believe. is like the people who we think are the big sinners versus the people that are the good churchgoers are both not righteous. How could this be? And here's why. It's gonna clarify what sin actually is. Uh, in, this, in this text, it says that sin is first not, not primarily, listen, a behavior issue. That's what we think, though. Like, we think there's good and bad people, and God loves the good people. Sin is not primarily a behavior issue, but primarily it's an inner attitude of your heart. So sin, the sin underneath our sin, is that we are radically self-absorbed. Or another way you could say it is we, we are very self-centered. Now, Paul has come a really long way in his journey here because what he just said is that no one is righteous, and he's putting himself in that category. He's saying, I'm not better than anyone. Now, the grace of God is the only way that Paul would be talking that way. Because if you know your Bible, Paul was very moral. He was very Jewish. He, he said under the law, he was blameless. He was known for snubbing his nose at Gentiles, unbelievers, as dogs. But now, now he's right here saying, <laughs> I'm no better than anyone. That's crazy. How did he get there? How did Paul get to the place where he says, I'm not better than the biggest sinner that you've ever witnessed? The doctrine of grace has radically humanized everyone. And my hope this morning is that you and I, by the grace of God, would look at anyone and say, I'm not better than anyone. Actually, a good sign that you're actually getting grace is that you can look at anyone that you think's different and says, really, we're in the same category. We're all sinners that have fallen short of the glory of God. Can you say, as you look at other people that struggle differently than you and say, I'm no better? This is what he's saying, that no one is righteous and no one is better than anyone. So verse 10 is all-inclusive. No one is righteous. The, 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 the religious and irreligious both 
Both are not in. Now, verse 11, it goes on to say this. No one understands. This is interesting. So what I just said is shocking. The good and bad alike, uh, apart from Christ, uh, are not okay. And no one understands. Another way you could say this is no one actually believes what I just said. Like, I don't really believe that, that, that I'm not better than anyone because we all have a very distorted view of self because of sin. And so we think that, yes, we may not be the best, but we're better than most people because we have an inner lawyer that is always uh, defending ourselves, always justifying our actions, that you and I have a, a, a lack of understanding of our sin because we can always play the comparison game. It's like, at least I'm not that guy, right? We can always find someone worse. Like we're not in jail or even if you're in jail, it's like, well, I didn't do that. They're, they, you know, they're gonna be uh, on death row for what they did. We always are trying to justify ourselves. And so it, what it says is no one understands. So in Romans right here, Paul has given us a reality check, helping us deal in our reality that no one is righteous, not one, and you really don't understand what I'm saying. You're, you don't have the ability to comprehend it besides the word of God and the spirit of God to help us understand. And it goes on to say that no one seeks God. No one seeks God. So we're all on the same boat, the religious and irreligious, that no one understands, that we don't really view ourselves as the sinners that we are, and that no one apart from the spirit of God is seeking a relationship with, with him. Uh, the climax of the sermon last week is that we're not seeking God, but God is seeking us. And really, until you understand that, you really haven't comprehended grace. Because grace is not that you turned over a new leaf, that I was doing bad things, now I'm doing good things. It is, it is that God loved us at our worst that he pursued us as we are in direct rebellion to, towards him. That's when you discover grace. Romans 5, 8 says it this way. It says that, but God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us while we were in rebellion towards him, while, while we were at our worst. This has actually been my prayer all week, that you would have a realization that you weren't ever seeking God. And that by the grace of God, you'd understand that it, he was the one seeking you. The way that you're going to get there this morning is verse 12. Verse 12 will actually help us understand that we're actually not seeking God. Because a lot of us are like, well, no, 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 I, I seek God. I go to church. I do these things. And then he's going to get to the reason underneath, the, the, <laughs> the reason why you do the things that you do. Verse 12, all have turned aside. So again, this is all inclusive language. None is righteous. That's everyone in here. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Listen, no one does good, not even one. Now, this is hard to believe. What I just said that, what I just, I'm just read what it just said, that no one does good. A lot of our, our inner lawyer right now is like, that's not true. I've done a lot of good things in my life. And what this text is saying, no, 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 you really haven't. And the reason why, here's the reason why, you don't understand really where sin lies. See, we don't really under, we don't have a mental map, a cognitive understanding what really sin is. We think primarily Christianity is stop doing the bad things and do good things. And the primary reason that no one does good is because sin 
in its, its root form is a relational problem, not a behavior problem. It's a relational problem, not a behavior problem. Because they're like, no one does good. You're like, well, I do good. Then the question is, not that you're doing good, but then why? Why are you doing the things that you're doing? So it lays us very exposed and humbles us. It's saying, not that you don't, good, don't do good things, but why are you doing the very good things that you're doing? That's where sin lies. So a lot of us like, well, I, I go to church, I've given, I've done these things, I've kept the Ten Commandments, I've done all these things. And the question is, not that you haven't done it, but why have you done the things that you've done? Is it for the glory of God or for the glory of yourself? Is it for you trying to save yourself or is it doing it from out of salvation that comes from Christ? I've seen many people that are great people that serve in, in the school system and serve their neighbors. They're great people. And like, they do a lot of good things. And, and I'd agree, yeah, they do a lot of good things. But the question is, why are they doing the things they're doing? So I'll, lay, I'll just lay this on myself. What's crazy is I grew up in a Christian home, when, when, was going into ministry, and I would dare say, I didn't even comprehend grace. So let me track that out for you. So I, I, I grew up in church, um, you know, said a prayer. I didn't, nothing really took root. And then I went on my life and, 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 and uh, was, hadn't really changed. I started doing things I, I, I shouldn't be doing. And then in college, like, I'm going to change. And so I changed. And I started from bad to good. And, but there was never a root change, although exteriorly there was a change. And so I went from... I went from doing the things that I shouldn't be doing to doing the things I should. And I started working for inner city ministry, driving down to the inner city, working with a boys and girls club, putting on a little discipleship now for them. And I was, I was there all summer. And the whole time I was doing it, you know who I was doing it for? It wasn't for the kids. It wasn't for the glory of God. It was for me. I was driving down. I could even remember the thoughts as I was driving down. I'm the type of person that's not going to the bar right now. I'm not going to the club right now. I'm the type of person that's going down to serve the least of these. God has to be proud of me. That was going in my head. Now, who was I doing it for? For myself. Then furthermore, as I got into ministry, I started working as an intern. And as an intern, I was like, God, I'll go into ministry. You can use me in great ways. And, you know, a lot of arrogance going on in that, a lot of that statement. And I, it was a year of internship. I thought I was working 80 hours. I was trying to work really hard and nothing to show for it. Right? I mean, um, you know, I'm not even teaching. I wish I thought like God was calling me to teach. Uh, I felt sorry for myself as I had to set up signs and tear down. And I was, and I had my great pity. And literally I felt like the Holy Spirit asked me this question. Are you serving me or are you serving yourself? And again, it was all about me. I was doing good things but who was I doing them for? I was doing it for the glory of Scott and not the glory of God. So it's not that you're not doing good. The question is, why are you doing the good things that you're doing? And what it says is no one does good apart from the spirit of God. Even the good things are filthy rags before God and actually are just trying to earn the, earn the affection of either God or man. Now, the reason why we do this is, is a couple of things. Because we, if we we think it's like good to bad or bad to good, that we have these good works. We think we can demand things from God. 
So if I, if I serve God and I do these right things, we think God has to give us wealth or we try to negotiate God, with God that we have health and prosperity, that you're gonna protect my family if I serve you. So the reason why we do good things is to try to earn a blessing from God. That's not Christianity. That's a cosmic genie in the air that the Bible does not teach about, right? So you're actually trying to earn God's favor. Only Christ can earn his favor. So many times I hear parents say, you know what? I'm coming for my kids. And we usually... <laughs> Usually I'll say, no, you know what you need to be coming for? You, you need Jesus. Of course your kids do, but primarily you need grace. I hear I'm coming to church so, man, I, I can have a healthy marriage. And not that coming to church doesn't help you have a healthy marriage. There's not a guarantee, right? So we're trying to get things for God. Who are you doing it for? Then furthermore, we all have to lay our head on a pillow at night and go to bed. So a lot of times we do good works is so we can rest well at night because we have a guilty conscience. We know the things that we've done. And so you're trying to do good things. I'm the type of guy that helps the old lady across the street. God, God, yes, I've done some bad things, but yet he looks at that and he's like, look at him. He's, he's helping that old lady. He's a good guy. We're doing it to appease our conscience. See, the whole time that we do good works, we're just trying to prove our goodness so we can look at ourselves in the mirror and say, I'm okay. This is what it's saying is that no one is good. Now, you may be fooling your spouse. You may be fooling the community. You may be fooling everyone, but God's not fooled by your good works. And he actually sees the spiritual leprosy of the glory of self, the sin under the sin, that he clearly states uh, in 13 through uh, 18. I've read it several times now. And every time I read, I'm like, man, that can't be me. And every time I've read it, I was like, that can't be everyone that he's talking about. And this is, hear me, this is exactly how God views us in our self-righteousness. This is how exactly how God views us in our sin, in our good works apart from Christ. I'm gonna read it. It says this, we'll just, uh, verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of ass is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In their way of peace, they have not known. There, there is no fear of God before their eyes. See, he's telling, Paul is telling us how God views self-righteousness. It, it's, it's wicked, open graves. It leads to death. It's a spiritual leprosy that we may be able to cover up, but God clearly sees now, verse 19 is the whole point of this train of thought so far that or argument that, that Paul's been getting at. Listen to what he says. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. So I want let you, to let you just hear the words that have been said so far. No one is righteous. No one understands. No one sees God. No one is good. And the reason why, the reason why Paul is telling us this is what? So we would shut our mouths, that we'd stop defending ourselves. It would, it would be so we'd stop talking, it would quiet our soul. Have you ever tried to talk to your kids and they just keep talking, 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 and you're like, be quiet. I need you to hear me. This is what God's doing. I need you to shut your mouth and stop and to listen, to quit blame shifting to quit beating yourself up, quit fooling yourself because you're not fooling me. He's saying 
to quit with the excuses. Here's one thing this helps us. When you understand even your good works are, are, are filthy before God because you're doing it for yourself and not his glory, you will stop saying, I will be better. It will quiet your soul to stop. It's a spiritual silence that lets grace, grace in. Because what you hear is you don't measure up and I gotta be better. And that's not the gospel. This is to bring us really to the end of ourselves, to the death of ourselves so we can see Christ. He's trying to bring grace into our heart. He's not trying to shame you. He's trying to free you from yourself. See, all you need, listen, all you need is nothing. That's the point of this passage. The problem is we, have a, we come with hands full of filth and self-righteousness. He says, I need you to lay that down so I can fill you with grace. See, Christianity is not just saying, God, please forgive me for the things I've done wrong. It's saying, please forgive me for the things that I've done good for the why I've done them. It's repenting not only from your sin, but from your damnable good works. That's when you come to Christ. That's why I was surprised by grace again and again, because I keep putting myself in there. And God's saying, stop, it's about Christ. You need to silence yourself and look to Christ. See, this, the, the place that, that there comes solution here, because it's heavy, is in verse 18. It says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's our, our root problems. We don't stand in awe of God. We stand in awe of ourselves. And no fear of God is the, the opposite or the problem to the remedy, which is really standing in awe of who God is. And if you know your Bible, in, in Psalm and Proverbs, it says what? The beginning of wisdom is what? Fear of the Lord. Beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord. The beginning of wisdom is really truth applied or experienced truth is what? That how you're going to experience God is what? By fear of the Lord. Now, the word fear, we think that means like, oh, we gotta be scared of God. That's not what it's saying. It means to stand in awe of God. The way that you're going to experience God is to stand in awe of him. And I have other places I could point out, but I, just, I don't have time for it. Psalm 130, verse three and four helps us understand what it means to stand in awe of God. Listen, this is just the word of God. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquity. So it's asking this question. If, if God was going to, to mark all the sin of everyone who could stand, the answer is no one. Verse four is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. When you understand the forgiveness of Christ, you know what happens? You start to stand in awe of Christ. There's a, there's a humbling that God would die for you. There's a joy. It takes your breath away. The cure for self-centeredness is to be caught up with God. The fear of God, to stand in awe of who God is and what he's done. That God is seeking you a sinner. That he gave his life for you. That he died for you. That he rose for you. He wants to cover you with grace. It's while you were still a sinner that Christ died for you. This is where grace is applied. This is where the, the fear of the Lord actually happens when you experience the forgiveness of Christ. When you experience the gospel. I'll give you a story and I'll close this way. If you know the, uh, the, the book of Hosea, uh, God comes to Hosea, who, who, who's a prophet, and he says uh, something shocking 
to, to, to him. He's like, I want you to take, I want you to take Gomer as, as your wife. And if you know the story, Hosea takes Gomer as, as a wife and she is, she's not faithful. Not like a little unfaithful. She's like a lot unfaithful. Like not one guy, many guys. He keeps going back. She keeps running away. At one point, she even names one of the kids. Like that's not, that's not even your kid, right? Like it's, it's really bad. And this is Hosea's wife. At one point, she runs. She gets caught up in, in slavery, probably being sold. She is unfaithful, full of filth, probably stripped down. And as she's at her lowest point, she hears, she hears her husband's voice saying, I want her, and buys her at a high cost and puts a robe around her saying, you're going back with me. Then God looks at Jose and is like, this is what I do for you. This whole illustration that he lived through is like, this is how I love you. See, we are, we are Gomer. We're, we're, we're not faithful, we're faithless. We don't have anything before God. We've been stripped. This is what Romans is doing. It's really laying us bare, putting us in our shame, where we shut our mouths and we look at the cost that was paid for us, the high cost of Christ, to hear God says, I want you while you're at your worst. And I'm gonna give my son as a ransom and I'm gonna clothe you in his righteousness and you're gonna come and be mine. That's grace. We didn't earn it. He freely gives it to those who come. Now the question is, will you come? Will you come? Will you confess? Will you be covered by the grace of God? Will you rid your heart of selfishness and self-righteousness and be covered by the grace and the lavish love of God and the righteousness of Christ? Let's pray. God, I pray that you'd help us see that we don't seek you. Help us confess that we don't seek you in any way. We act like we do. The good news is that you seek us. And at our worst, you say, you're mine, you're loved, you're my treasure, paid in full, that you're forgiven, you're clothed, you're a new creation, and you ask us to come with you. You give us a new name. God, I pray that we'd walk in awe of grace, forgiveness, that we'd walk in humble joy and adoration of a Savior who died. God, I pray that we'd lay our deadly doings down, down at your feet, and we'd stand in you alone, glorious and complete. That's Christianity. Challenge us by your word and comfort us with your spirit. Help us not maneuver out of grace, but sit in grace as treasured sons and daughters in humble adoration and worship of your love, Jesus. We ask that you move in the ways that you need to and that you flood our minds, our hearts, maybe for the first time or the millionth time with grace that lead to exuberant joy. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen.